Here's a quiz question for you. Can you name a contemporary composer who won the Pulitzer Prize in Music for the first opera that they ever wrote? We'll have the answer and much more on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. The answer to our quiz is American composer Kevin Putz, who won the Pulitzer Prize in 2012 for his opera Silent Night. So how do composers pick a subject matter? What is the compositional process like? How does a composer work with a librettist? I'm Naomi Baratera, and in today's episode, we have a special live event recording from the Met Opera Guild archives when my colleague Elspeth Davis and I had the pleasure of hosting a panel discussion in 2017 with some of today's most innovative and brilliant composers, Missy Mazzoli, Paola Prestini, and Kevin Putz. I'm very excited that everybody came back after session one. I know we threw everything at you really, really fast. So I'm excited that you were here for round two. Um, And we're just really excited today that all these incredible people decided to give their time to us to talk to you guys about what it's like being a composer and writing in this day and age. You know, the future of music, easy questions like that. Um, (laughs) So I think we're going to start with a super easy generic question. So we only have the two microphones for all three of you, and I apologize for that. But um, if you want to one by one, introduce yourselves and give us your brief, like, 30-second life story, how you decide to become a composer. It can be longer than that if you want. <laughs> Just generic, easy, tell us about yourself, because some of these people don't don't know who you are. Yes, make Paola go first, yes. <laughs> so my name is Paola Cristini, and um, I guess... How I became a composer, I was um, from a family of musicians. My father makes musical instruments, and we moved from Italy to the Mexican border when I was very young. Um, My parents quickly separated, and my mom really uh, cared about me setting the piano. She wanted me to continue, and I hated setting the piano. Uh, So she was a full-time working mom, and I had nanny, and she would say um, to Maria, Paula has to practice four hours a day. My plan was that Maria didn't know the difference between Beethoven or Pristini, so I would be improvising and like I'd be like, no, 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 I'm practicing, I'm practicing. <laughs> and my mom would come home and she'd be like, did she practice? And I'd be like, Maria would be like, she sounded amazing. And this worked for like, you know, almost like six months until I had my first recital and I did not know the Chopin and I did not know the Beethoven. <laughs> and it was a huge crash and my mom was like, what happened? And I was like, I just don't like you know, I want to play the piano. I love to compose. That's really what I want to do. And so she found a teacher. I went to Interlochen, went to Juilliard. And um, and basically, you know, I've always known I wanted to be a composer. When I was at Juilliard, it was, it was you know, it was a different time for women. And uh, so I quickly started something called uh, Vision into Art, which was the company that incubated my large-scale multimedia work. I um, had a mentor named Paul Soros. I was a Soros fellow. And he said to me, if you have one piece of pie, what do you do? 
And I remember being in that room thinking, well, of course you share it. And he said, no, no, you don't share it, you make more. And so that became the philosophy for the rest of my life, which is that you really have to think about the context of your life. Make sure you commission your work. Make sure you're thinking about your colleagues. And really, that's you know, the path that I've been on. Well, I'm Kevin Putz. I um, grew up in the Midwest um, and in small towns in the Midwest. My parents are teachers. My dad taught math at a small college, and I'd always we'd always had a piano in the house, and I just sort of improvised from a, a very young age, just making things up. My brother would run around and play Star Wars with various lightsabers, and I would make up Star Wars sounding music. Um, and then at some point I started piano lessons, and I found it frustrating to to have to sort of, the discipline of and, and, the, and the kind of boredom of playing a single line with one hand. And so I, I found it hard, and um, around the time I was 11 or 12, my piano teacher heard me making something up on the piano before a lesson, and she asked what I was playing, and I said, oh, I just, I'm just making it up. And she, I guess she didn't realize that I did that. And she started giving me little assignments, you know, composing assignments. Well, why don't you write this for next week? And she'd help me notate it um, sometimes. And, and, eventually, and then I saw the film Amadeus, and, um, <laughs> and that sealed, that was, you know, That's like Naomi's favorite movie, oh, so you guys are such a beautiful movie, and I, keep, I think about it a lot, I talk, to, uh, I talk about it, because there's something that, about that film that really gets to the heart of what's amazing about composing, you know, that it can be, or that, that someone who outwardly is so, such a buffoon, and such beauty can come out of it, you know, it's, it's anyway. That's off the topic, but I saw that and I, I fell in love even more with Mozart. And I think, it, and then so I wanted to write a piano concerto, and I wanted to play it like Mozart. And we didn't have an orchestra though in this little. little so, so the band director, this amazing guy, um, he orchestra. I wrote it for sort of two pianos, and he took the second part and wrote it for my seventh grade friends who were playing saxophones, and that was the string section. Um, so anyway, but that was a really, I mean, making light of it, but it was a really inspiring and important thing that my teacher, uh, that he would do that, you know, that he would spend all this time, and he realized the importance of something like this for me at that point in my life. So I've always played the piano, and I've always written music. It's just part of who I am, I guess. Um, I am Missy Mazzoli, and like, Paul and Kevin, I um, I came to composing after realizing that I was not going to be a famous pianist. Yeah, I started playing piano when I was seven. I did not have a musical family at all. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, um, and we were not far from New York and Philadelphia, but we never went there. <laughs> so I it was a very sort of isolated um, upbringing, which in the end was good for a composer because I was able to um, go into my own world and sort of invent these uh, my own little worlds. Um, but at the time, I just dreamed of moving to New York, so being here has been a victory every day. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and I had, you know, even being very young, I had so many other interests. You know, I, I was interested in visual art, I was interested in theater, um, in poetry, and I, I knew even at a very young age that I needed a profession that allowed me to access all of those things. And composing lets you do that. You can, you're always researching things, you're always, um, you know, looking into things as for inspiration, even if it's not a narrative work. Um, and then when I got to opera, you know, that felt like a real natural fit. I became composer-in-residence with Opera Philadelphia in 2012, was composer-in-residence there for three years, 
And that was just really, uh, really life-changing. And it made me realize that I had something to say in this medium, which I never thought I'd even have the chance to do. Um, so yeah, I think that's, and the, the collaborative aspect too of opera is I think very important for all of us. We were just talking about it um, before we came in here, that you, um, you're not alone. You get to work with all these other people and all these other amazing artists. Well, so that organically segues into my next question, which is amazing. Um, and you spoke to it a little bit, but um, for the rest of you, what sort of attracted you uh, to opera as a medium? I never thought I would I would be an opera composer. I when I was in school um, at the Eastman School of Music, my teachers um, all had big careers writing orchestra pieces, and so I thought that's what I should aspire to writing for orchestras. And I love the orchestra, and I eventually that that's how I started my career writing for orchestras, and I still do that. Um, but in uh, I don't know maybe two thousand nine, I uh, my publishing publishing agent got a call from um, Dale Johnson, who runs the Minnesota Opera, and he said he had heard some of my music and wondered if I wanted to talk about writing an opera. So Dale called me and he wanted me to do uh, an adaptation of a French film called Joyeux Noël. And uh, it would be in five languages and a huge orchestra, a huge chorus, and 12 principals or something. And I, and, you know, I said yes. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I, I watched the film and I thought, okay, I guess it looks like an opera film. I don't know. I, I can imagine certain parts that I could be, you know, I could imagine from what a little I knew about opera that could work. And I wrote, I wrote that. And, you know, it's funny. I got the libretto from Mark Campbell, who wrote the libretto, and I've written three operas with him now. And as soon as I started, right, there was a sense of like getting the the envelope and opening it up. It, it was kind of like my heart was racing. It was so exciting to have some a place to start, you know, beyond silence, what I was used to. Um, <laughs> Put it in the score on the piano, and and you know, just reading the first few lines, and you know, playing something, and sort of, I was like actually singing. I thought, well, I'm I'm writing a a, a line for an opera, and um, at that moment, it was so exciting for me, and I realized that there was this narrative element that had been in my music for a long time, and my love of film is what really immediately came to the surface. I felt like I was going to tell this story like a like a modern film with the pace of that. And Mark had written a, a libretto which changed scenes so quickly that it was often possible to have the pace of, of cinema. And it was just so exciting. I just said, I, I just want this to go well enough so that I can do it again. Um, and so that's how I got into it. What was the question? Is that the question? <laughs> I don't even remember. <laughs> I, I guess I came into writing opera a little, a little differently in that um, I basically, since I graduated, I was commissioning my own work. And so the very first piece that I did was something called Oceanic Verses, which I think you guys heard a little bit of. And, um, you know, I left Italy at a very young age, and I had been going back but never really felt Italian. And I didn't feel Italian because I didn't feel that the plurality of experience that made me very American was represented in Italy. Until I went to the southern part of Italy, and I was in a residency uh, in um, the Salento region in a place called Lecce. And I was there uh, studying all different kinds of field music, and I was there just to write music. And I began to collect field samples and essentially realized that this land that I had no connection to originally, except for feeling, you know, that it was a fun place to visit, was in fact, this, it was really at the nexus of, of layers of immigration and empire building, and that I could find my way in through these field samples. And so I wrote the libretto, and I kind of created this Hubble, you know, this kind of thing that was not really an opera. 
um, but it allowed me to really explore the operatic potential. And I think now, looking back at why I do the kind of pieces I do, why I needed to commission and forget that maybe it was lack of opportunity or maybe just that I needed to really be doing these kinds of structures, um, I found that living on a border informed the things that I was attracted to. So I was actually attracted to things that didn't make sense together. When you live on a border, you see people who are looking at the McDonald arches and thinking, that's the place I want to be. Um, you speak in two languages, you live in two cultures, you feel very freely that you can go back and forth from one culture to another, but you also realize that there are people left out. And so this kind of synergy of putting disparate forces together was in fact what I was interested in. So Oceanic Verses happened, I, I combined an uh, improviser, a folk singer, it was a piece that really um, didn't get great reviews, it was, it was a really hard piece for me because I, I felt so strongly about it. It taught me a lot about learning how to speak about your identity and your brand as a composer. And then I did something called Aging Magician, which was also a long, long four-year process of kind of teaching young kids how to do puppetry and how to be part of an opera. That ended up on Broadway. And now, after all these years of self-producing, I'm finally commissioned by places like the Minnesota Opera and doing a piece with Bob Wilson in Zagreb. And it's interesting, because I think that I'm going to always need that balance of being able to control the people and the kind of scenarios that I want to work in. Because operas are four or five year relationships with people, and at the same time, have this extraordinary luxury of being able to be commissioned and make money off of what I love, love doing. So I'm happy with the journey, but it was definitely not a, an easy one. Yeah, I mean, I, I got into opera really through my need to tell stories about people. You know, I'm, I'm as a composer, I think a lot of composers are inspired by nature, politics, and I'm inspired by people. I'm inspired by human beings. Um, even in my non-narrative work, in my orchestral work or my chamber music, um, I conceive of the melodies and the instruments as, as people who are sometimes working with each other, sometimes working in opposition to each other. And there's this very sort of human narrative thread that goes through all of my work. Um, so I discovered this woman uh, in about 2004, discovered the journals of this woman, Isabel Eberhard, um, who actually lived, was a Swiss explorer in the early 20th century. And I felt, okay, this is going to be my first opera. This, is, this, this woman deserves a, a massive piece. It can't just be a song cycle. It can't just be an album. Um, it really has to be a world that the audience can step into. So that became my first opera, which premiered in 2012. It was called Song from the Uproar. And it was largely... Um, it, it wasn't a commission. I, I worked with uh, the amazing producer Beth Morrison and um, did a sort of black box premiere in the kitchen in Chelsea. And then people from Opera Philadelphia saw that, which eventually led to my residency and then um, a commission for my first big opera, Breaking the Waves, which premiered just about a year ago. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of my short journey. Oh, great. <laughs> All right, so I, a little bit of this has come out in your descriptions of how you came to opera, but... Opera as an art form is full of traditions and conventions. So we're curious about what composing in the operatic art form means to you and how your personal approach might align with some of those conventions or depart from it or challenge some of those conventions. Um, I think that, you know, in terms of conventions in, in opera, I think as composers working today, we're probably all pushing the form in different ways. Um, I think when, so two of the works that I've done recently, you may, actually three of the works I've done recently might not be traditional opera, but they still kind of explore operatic themes, potential arcs. They, they work on that kind of large operatic scale. 
but they push the form. So, for example, the piece I'm doing with Bob Wilson, I would probably say it's more opera theater. There's moments of great abstraction and moments that are incredibly linear and tell the story of Old Man and the Sea. To me, that I would still call that an opera. But then you begin to think about how it's perceived and you question perhaps the naming of things becomes very important in order to help people's expectations when they come and they don't see a linear opera. So that's something I've been thinking a lot about, you know, in how we name things as opera composers. Um, the work that I'm doing with Mark Camden for Minnesota Opera will be, I think, pushing different, you know, it'll have different challenges, but structurally it'll probably be more like an opera that you would see in a, in a regular opera house. Um, so I think, I guess I think that it's exciting and challenging to push the norms. It's exciting to bring in things um, that bring in, I think, different audiences to opera. Um, but but I do I do spend time thinking about whether things are opera or opera theater or you know folk opera. And, and I think it's it's important to speak intelligently about what you're doing so you set expectations. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. It's like we can talk forever about what is an opera and what's not an opera. And mm -hmm. every time you're like, oh, well, an opera has to have this, 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 then there's an example of 10 operas that don't have that. You know, so pieces like Einstein on the Beach, you know, was, was, was hugely influential for me. And a lot of people would say, oh, that's not an opera. But, and we're never going to agree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so in the end, I feel like, you know, the, the, that the definition of opera has to expand instead of us saying, well, it's sort of an opera, sort of not, you know, and because um, my first opera as well was like not a traditional opera. Um, it, it did not have a linear narrative. Um, it was really this woman's life flashing before her eyes in these separated scenes. Um, but in a way, it's funny because, you know, we don't usually get to decide the, um, the parameters of our, we don't often get to decide the parameters of our work. Um, so you're often, you're commissioned for a certain size ensemble, um, a certain size cast, and you have a little, usually have a little bit of say, but um, that's really like set out for you. So my challenge, you know, with a piece like Breaking the Waves, which is a more conventional instrumentation compared to my first opera and that Breaking the Waves was a chamber orchestra, nine principal singers, men's chorus, no amplification, no electronics, um, or very, very few electronics, couple samples. So my innovation in that sense was through the orchestration itself and I really challenged myself to do things I'd never done before with the orchestra and, and also with the voices. You know, I was like, what is the craziest thing I can do with the unamplified operatic voice? And um, so chose to push uh, the innovation within the, the confines, which is in air quotes, because I didn't feel confined by it at all, um, but within the parameters that were set out for me. I was thinking that we're also, in some ways, and I don't mean this as a, as a negative thing, but, uh, you know, the librettist, if you, if you work the way I like to work, which is to have the libretto complete and given to me so I know what I'm supposed to deal with. I know what the pacing will be. I know this music will come back here. I know this scene is going to be the big moment romantically or something. So you really are kind of bound by what your <laughs> your librettist does. And I think, I think Mark tends to work in a way which is more traditional. Um, he, he wants his characters to be um, clearly drawn and he wants you to understand their motivations and it sort of works like a like a, a typical um, like a play a very well written play but you have to find the music in it and to me that's for an opera has to be about the music um, and it's e you know it's easy not to sometimes you know just to sort of get through a scene but 
it has to be compelling musically, even when it's just dialogue. There can be something that, and for me, you know, opera, the, the music I love, that I keep coming back to, you know, the piece is not that you say, oh, that was a good opera, but that you keep listening to, that you keep putting on the CD player in the car or the, if you don't use CDs anymore, you know, MP3s or whatever, but you keep, you know, I want to hear that part in Don Giovanni or, you know, the, um, Peter Grimes or um, Nixon in China, you know, I, that art, I love that part, I love when that, this happens. So I want to try to create moments like that in, in my operas, you know, that'll be compelling musically. And sometimes it's about the brilliance of the voice, of giving the singers, you know, a moment to shine, or m many moments to shine. But other times it can be in the music that accompanies them. Um, there can be something interesting. I mean, I think Britain does this a lot, really well. There's always something interesting in the music that's supporting the, the singers. Um, the harmony, the orchestration, the, I don't know, something going on that is compelling. And so I'm always trying to find ways no matter what, something that will, would make me want to come back to it musically. Just one thing about kind of unconventional librettos. So when I went to work with Bob Wilson two years ago, we knew that we had this piece, we didn't have a commission. And, um, and for the entire first workshop, I had no words. And what he did is he, he created this scroll that was 30 feet long, and he basically would design the opera in front of me. And so we knew that we were doing it on Old Man and the Sea, and we knew, for example, that eventually it would be in seven parts, that there would be six interludes, that there was a vortex, that there was you know, all these inspiration points. And by the end of the two weeks, we had this scroll that had all of the parts of inspiration of the opera and no words. And then I was able to bring in one of my librettists who I love, Royce Fabric, and write into it. But it was a very scary process because I had to come up with music that was completely impressionistic, that would eventually have words and that's how he works. So, I mean, there's all different, you know, points of, of access that, that challenge, that can challenge you. I know for uh, Breaking the Waves, you got to work really closely with those principal singers in creating the roles. So I was just curious as to how much the singers, not how to say, but um, I guess how to say, in uh, the way the music was written and what do you feel are the, the differences between working with singers as opposed to other instrumentalists and... Yeah. Be, be kind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, oh, my God. No, I, ha I have so much. As part of my residency at Opera Philadelphia, they made me take voice lessons. And I would, I hated every minute of it. Because I, I, like, I would cry yeah. during the, the voice lesson because you're st standing in front of a mirror trying to make sound. And I sounded awful. And I was like, I'm supposed to be a good musician, but I can't. This is awful. And it, it just had, it was, I felt so vulnerable. And it, it really made me, realize a, a little tiny taste of what these singers are going through and how their body is their instrument and to say something negative about your their voice means to say something negative about them and it's a much it's a much more personal relationship mm -hmm. my my singers for breaking the waves you know we we picked them you know because they're brilliant musicians all around not just with beautiful voices and brilliant actors you know everything they're just brilliant people you know and and that they want to live in the role and are invested in the role and in the character yeah it was it was amazing and i find it's it's really essential for me to know who i'm writing for before i'm writing just even to picture their face <laughs> singing these words really helps me figure out you know what's next and they were they were just incredible it's not an easy opera you know every role is very exposed and, and difficult, and it's a huge sing for a lot of them. But yeah, they were instrumental in, in, in helping me write it. I've had wonderful experiences working with the singers. I mean, it's, you know, 
I don't know what you were thinking we were going to say, but I mean, I found you never know. such, such, you know, <laughs> uh, there's sort of a conscientious kind of, uh, I mean, at least the ones I've worked with, uh, to, to be prepared and to get my feedback all the time. It's been just wonderful. I would say with my first opera, I didn't, with Silent Night, I didn't know, I really didn't know who the cast was going to be. It was a long, they waited till <laughs> very late in the game to actually decide who was going to sing the role. So I was kind of writing for baritone, and that actually doesn't, you know, if you write for bassoon, you really know what to expect. Like, the low B flat is going to sound loud, and a high F above middle C will have a certain quality. A high F above middle C for a tenor, for a bass baritone, for a lyric baritone, it's, for every person, the voice is completely different. So you really, you need to write it around specific people. And so for my most recent piece, um, Elizabeth Cree, which is at Opera Philadelphia, I wrote for, uh, I knew uh, from the very beginning, Daniela Mack, the mezzo, wonderful mezzo, who I think has sung here at the Met, um, was going to be Elizabeth. And, you know, I just wrote an email to her and I said, so tell me about your voice. And she said, well, <laughs> you know, here's, I like, I can sing down this low and my passaggio is in here. I like to sing a, high A's and B flats, but really don't, you know, they have to be approached a certain way. And I said, great. And I wrote the piece, I wrote that on a piece of paper. I taped it to the table and <laughs> I wrote the piece around that. And she's, she was so happy with the, the part, you know, she really, and, and the same with Troy um, Cook, who, who sang um, John Cree. Just, I, he told me, you know, this is my, my money note is like a G above middle C. <laughs> and indeed it was, I mean, you know, when you just give him, it's the easiest thing. You write, you write a circle and it's a whole note, and you just let them sing a long note. Let's see, you don't have to be all complicated. You just give them that, and then they'll, oh, I mean, it's just amazing. Um, and it really is kind of, if you haven't worked with a singers a lot, and, you've, and you you know come into it, like in my mid-30s, when I wrote Silent Night, it, it was just an astonishing, you know, to hear someone at a workshop 10 feet in front of you, to the sound that comes out of them is really something. It really is an amazingly powerful experience if you if you didn't grow up with that experience I guess you know I've always been drawn to the human voice and it's what I love to do I love to write for for people and I like to write for the voice um, with oceanic it was an interesting thing because I had written this part for this woman named Helga Davis who was not classically trained she had a four octave range and I was really impressed by that and to this day I really love kind of playing with, um, with range for singers. But what it ended up being was that her skill set and her ability to act, she was eventually cast in the restaging of Einstein on the Beach as an actor. Um, and her ability to improvise completely really helped my own style evolve. And so I'll just tell one story because it's such a, I think such a poetic example of the relationships you form with people. I think I told you guys I was in the southern part of Italy for Oceanic. And one of the things we did is we created a film that went with the opera. And so we would scout locations for this film. And we came upon, in the southern part of Italy, there's tons of these beautiful, beautiful old houses and castles that are abandoned. And there's, you know, huge economic problems. So we had found this extraordinary space where there were wires coming out of all of the walls. And so I asked Helga to improvise in this room and that our filmmaker would take a, a snapshot of, of her improvising in the room. This is a part of the opera where I had recorded these young kids singing about, um, it's, it's called um, Femine, and it's about women who work in the field, field in southern Italy. And it says, women of the field, you go out in two, but you come back in four. And the song was about rape, but the kids had no idea. So in the opera, you hear the kids saying in this very light voice, this kind of 
misunderstanding or innocent understanding of the words, you hear the music and then you see Helga improvise. She goes into the room and she as an African-American 50-year-old woman who's experienced tremendously harsh things in life feels oppressed by these wires and it's a beautiful improvisation. And later we found out that the wires were just there to hang bread. And so it became this extraordinary experience full of layers, full of life. And I think for all of us, when we choose singers that we write for, we form relationships with them. And you choose when you're spending four years of your life writing a piece, whether it's commissioned or not. So huge choices in terms of who you work with, the families you create, what you want to learn as a, you know, as a composer, what, what kind of steps you want to go forward. And so you know, when I'm lucky enough to choose the singers, I, I, I look for an immense range that's not just vocal, but that's also human. So building on this idea of the process of opera composing, when we dig into opera history, we hear stories about you know, Rossini or Donizetti whipping off an opera in three months from the time they get the libretto until the time that the curtain rises. So can you talk a little bit more about compositional timelines today, maybe some of your experiences, how they differ from composers of the past, or what you expect in terms of timeline? jump in um, um, the I know I've heard that about Rossini two months is, yeah. um, well for one thing the 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 form was much more uh, there was a sort of way you wrote an opera it was you know arias and ensembles and recit sections and it was just the way it was done there's a tremendous amount of pressure on any composer working today that basically we have to reinvent the art form every time we write a piece this is just the expectation, and we all have, we've all we talked about the kind of feedback that we get, w wanted or not, from, you know, critics or, you know, anyone. But essentially, if anyone's heard anything like it before, then it's not really of interest. And so, uh, it's just, it, so the time that that takes to kind of, like you were saying, to, to put this scroll on the floor and try to dream up something that had never been experienced is exciting, but also takes time, you know. And, um, and also you learn things throughout the process um, of, of working on, you know, through workshops. You realize they can be very kind of painful. Like you can work on a scene and really work like crazy on it and rewrite it and, you know, a million times and try to get it right and even orchestrate it. And then, we d then everyone decides that we don't need that scene. So it's thrown out, and so another, you know, and so, but this process, you know, to, to get the pace of a, of a piece right um, can take a long time, and I think, you know, usually I would say, I don't know for, for all, of, all of us here, but I think, you know, at least two years is what, you know, usually I think people start a couple of years before these days, so. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my, my first opera, uh, Song from the Uproar, took me five years, even though it's only 70 minutes, because I, I just had all these day jobs. So I was, I was running a music festival, but I was also, when I first moved to New York, working at the Whole Foods in Union Square, <laughs> and uh, very glamorous, and like playing piano for baby ballet classes. I was like doing a million different jobs. So I just, I would write at night and on the weekends. And it, so it took me, took me five years to write this like 70 minutes of music. And then the commission for Breaking the Waves, I, I, that took me like precisely three years from beginning to write it to the premiere. And the one that I just finished, it took me one year. So by that math, I'm on, I think the next one will take me three months. Okay. <laughs> um, but it, I feel like you feel like you never have enough time. Like it's always, I feel like just down to the wire for me at least. You know, I always make the deadline, but like it's, it's a struggle. 
Um, and it's and really like when I say three years, it's three years of constant work every day on it. Uh, yeah, I guess for me, the the the, the part that that's the hardest is the beginning of a composition. So it takes me a long time to think about like how the language, the the process, um, and I tend to still write in big spurts. So I'll take like two or three weeks where I'm like just writing nonstop, and then that's the kind of beginning part of the process where I find language, and, and then it, it becomes. Um, it becomes something that I edit and I work on and I work on. So all these pieces, I think, I think what Kevin said, it's, it's so spot on, like this feeling that everything you do needs to kind of be different from the work you've done before, it needs to be the best thing you've ever done, is um, it's a lot of pressure on, on composers, um, and, and specifically opera. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a challenging, challenging line of work. When you get the opportunity to uh, pick the, the story of the opera that you're going to write about. It doesn't seem like that's always the case. Um, but in the opportunity that you do, um, how do you go about picking the source material? And then uh, I want you guys to talk a little bit more about um, if you get the opportunity to pick your librettist, what goes into picking a librettist and what that relationship is like. Well, with librettists, we actually all work with kind of the same group of people. I don't right. know if there just aren't that many librettists, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Mark Campbell, and um, I've also, I did a little short, like seven minute opera with Mark too. There so we've um, <laughs> all worked with Mark and then um, Royce Vavrick. Um, have you worked with him? No, no, no but eventually, yeah. He's just a brilliant, um, wonderful person. He's like my best friend too. So I think that, um, and we live a mile away from each other. So we see each other or talk to each other every day. Mm-hmm. And I think Paolo probably, you know, you're always, we're always texting with Royce and it's like, it's, he's just wonderful um, and very open and communicative and very open to, to us changing things um, in, because I think the, the, text inevitably has to sort of move, has to be flexible to accommodate the music, you know, um, and vice versa. But um, he's really great. He's also wonderful at sort of understanding what his collaborators need. So the the words that he'll write for Paola are very different from the words he'll write for me, which are very different from the libretto he'll write for uh, someone like David T. Little. Yeah, and in terms of picking picking stories, you know, I have different things that I'm attracted to. I'm really attracted to complicated female characters and uh, women in impossible situations um, who have to find creative and unconventional ways of accessing um, power and control. Um, and this is true, has been true of all of my operas. Um, my most recent opera, uh, which will come to Miller Theater uh, next September, a little plug, um, <laughs> is about homesteaders. You know, so this woman in this family um, doesn't have is not in charge of where the family is moving and really not in charge of things, so she takes control through um, domestic activities and throughout the whole hour of the opera she's always working she's chopping wood she's sweeping she's always moving and working and like cleaning the graves of her daughters and um so that's something I come back to again and again I'm also attracted to the sort of like darker side of things um and I don't know what that's about psychologically but (laughs) that's kind of where I find myself going a lot of the time so I guess I also love working with Royce and, and with Mark but I'll talk a little bit about different collaborators just to paint a different picture um, lately, probably for the past five years, I've been really obsessed with death. And I think it's because my, the man who was really kind of my father is 86. And, and I, you know, somewhere down there I know that I'm going to lose him and I've never really lost anybody I've loved. So I've been creating pieces that are really based in trying to understand legacy and life and the end of life. And so the piece, Aging Magician, which I think you heard a little bit about, is a piece that um, I had read this short uh, piece by Jonathan Sapin that was based on the classic Caron tale of crossing the river Styx. 
But in his, it wasn't the River Styx, it was in Venice, and it was a gondola in Venice. And so I put together Rindy Eckert, who's this brilliant Pulitzer uh, Prize finalist, uh, winning librettist and performance artist, who I had seen when I was 19, and he was at the you know Culture Project performing this beautiful piece called God Created Great Whales, which blew my mind. But anyway, I knew I wanted to, wanted to work with him. And then Julian Crouch, who directed um, Satyagraha at the Met and designed it, and is a puppeteer and is brilliant. So I went to both of them and I was like, I'm dying to work with you on this piece, and I don't know what it's going to be about, but you know, just I think it's going to be amazing, and it's, you know, it's just based on the River Styx, and I have the Brooklyn Youth Chorus because they wanted me to create a piece for them. And then we ended up deciding that instead of it crossing the River Styx or in Venice, it would actually be crossing the East River, and then instead of taking a gondola, we would actually take the F train. And then the F train, in fact, because Julian had just come from London, he was like, the F train has the most amazing stops. You know, it has Neptune, and it has church, and it's like, well, when do you guys come up with an Avenue X? And so we decided that, um, that Rindy's character would be this clockmaker who you come upon him at death, but the children are actually guiding you through it. And instead of actually fixing clocks, he's really been writing this book called The Aging Magician. And long story short, his paradise is Coney Island, because he had always wanted to be a magician. So um, I think I, I love working also with different writers because they bring something completely different. And Rindy and I would go back and forth. I did not have a complete libretto, which was really stressful because up until the showing at the Armory, I like, didn't have something. So I had to write dummy lyrics, and then he would write it in. He kind of became the character and that the character has a problem writing. And so he like had this writer's block, and we had to unblock it. It was really stressful. <laughs> I'll just say quickly that... I, both Missy and Paola are much better at coming up with ideas than I am, I think. Um, and, and I'm just sort of astounded at the, the, the way that they think about um, a story and what a story could be. I am, that is not my strength. Um, I, I have not, I've written three operas and none have been the subject of, I'm trying to form a good sentence here, None of them have been my idea. Um, they've all been someone else's ideas. And I, it, the problem is that basically every time someone inter, you know, suggests something to me, it seems like a good idea. I think, oh, yeah. <laughs> I get, you know. And um, so, so I've not done, but then I got, after Silent Night, I got very nervous about like, choosing the right thing to do because I realized that the commitment is such a, it's so great in terms of, you know, like if I say I'm going to do this, it's going to be three years and I can't do anything else. And so a lot of things came, came by me that were suggested by really good companies and I, I didn't do them. I just said, no, I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I just don't, I don't know. I just didn't think it was right. And so I'm not, I, I'm really not great at this. And um, usually it's, it has to be something that someone else brings up and and I think, okay, what could this be musically? Um, I think we all work differently. Apparently, somebody told me once that Stephen Sondheim never had an idea of his own except uh, for um, Sweeney Todd. So that makes me feel better. But um, <laughs> anyway. All right, so digging into the music a little bit, we were chatting before the discussion today about how this morning we did the history of music from 1900 to 2017 in five minutes. We talked a little bit about... Uh, tonality, atonality, the different isms that kind of popped up. And so this is kind of a two-part question. How would or can you describe your musical style and influences in the actual sound of your music? And then also, what part of that do you, do you draw any parts of that from styles that are not classical music? 
All right. Um, I uh, am shameless in that way. I mean, I, I, I think that if I need, um, for example, Silent Night, there are moments when, um, you know, things get um, incredibly, I hate to say the word dissonant because it's only dissonant in a certain context, but um, challenging, um, I would say, uh, cacophonous and a reflection of modernist styles, Polish texturalism, <laughs> that means anything to um, earlier Pendereski, Ligeti, certain things, and, and battle scenes where things need to be that way. I just, I couldn't figure out a way to write that piece and have it all be in one sort of, one kind of cloth, you know, one harmonic language. It just didn't work for me. So there are moments like that which are very much like I just described. And other moments that are like in the key of D flat major, basically sort of a pendulum between this, the tonic and the dominant by moving notes here and there and th that are and, and I, I would say people hear it and they think it sounds like film music uh, so anyway and then there are moments that are um, in the style of Mozart because the opera opens um, in a German opera house um, where the two two of the principal characters are, are opera singers and they're singing in an opera that's in the style of Mozart which I, I just totally launched into. It was the <laughs> most fun I've ever had, trying to make it sound like actually like Mozart in, in every respect, the orchestration, everything. Um, so that piece is very stylistically broad. And it, um, in Elizabeth Cree, I felt for some reason, I guess because it's sort of a, a murder mystery, kind of a thriller, that it needed to be much more focused stylistically. So there is a kind of sound world that is more consistent throughout the 90 minutes of that piece which, by the way, has 30 scene changes. So if you do the math, you know, three minutes average per scene. So it moves very quickly. Um, it's hard for me to describe, to, to describe what that language is exactly. I'd have to sort of play it for you. But um, that's, I think the piece, I don't know how you guys feel. I assume probably the same way. But that the piece demands certain things. And it could demand the, a, a great breadth of style, you know, very, very disparate sort of styles. Or it could demand something much more focused. Yeah, I think that the story really tells you what, what to do. And that's the, the, the most fun thing about opera is that it's allowed me to access different parts of my creative self because the story has inspired me to go to some crazy places. You know, but I always, it's, it's always the hardest question to answer is like, how do you describe your music? What does your music sound like? Um, because for me, and I think for a lot of us, we're trying to do something new with every mm -hmm. piece and with, and with our work in general. So to put a name on it um, is only to compare it to what's happened before, which is not what I want to do. And I, I look at everything that has happened before, you know, minimalism, Polish textualism, <laughs> um, really kind of thorny modernism, like all, all these isms um, as, as tools. And it's a palette that I can, I can draw from and combine in ways that really make it something uh, that is mine. I'm also, you know, I'm 36. I grew up in the 80s and 90s driving around rural Pennsylvania listening to the radio. Um, did not grow up listening to classical music. So it's like all this, you know, like really massive like Guns N' Roses tunes and like all this, all this, this stuff is in there, you know, and, and it kind of comes out in, in the work and an opera it's so massive that you can do a lot of different things I think for Breaking the Waves I was also for the first time in my life uh, really influenced by a place you know I said earlier I was I've been really influenced by human beings and human interaction but for Breaking the Waves you know I went to Scotland with with um, my librettist Royce, Royce Fabric to do research for this opera and um, we just spent a week driving around the Isle of Skye 
which was so incredible. And it, and it really, really, really informed the work. And in the, that, that landscape, and if anyone's, you know, I'm sure some of you have been to Scotland where it's like this, like it's such a violent uh, landscape of contradictions. You know, so you have like a jagged rock formation that ends in like a beautiful meadow full of sheep. And then it like plunges off a cliff into the ocean, which is like raging. And it's like all these things right next to each other. Um, so the opening of Breaking the Waves um, is these massive big chords that are sort of like these rocks um, coming out of the meadow. Um, and so it really was directly influenced by the landscape. And there's also uh, the music of the um, the Hebrides is in there too. There's a, a tradition called Gaelic Psalms, um, which is a liturgical tradition that I've, I sort of modified and made my own. So, and but it all comes out of the story. The story required a massive kind of thorny beginning and um, the sort of religious section as well. I don't have a lot to add, but I'll just say that um, I think the, the newest piece that I'm doing um, I've been writing a lot of electronic music, and so it has a lot of, um, it's, it's being done in Zagreb, and I, I think there's, because it's Bob Wilson, there's less of a kind of expectation of, no, it can't include electronics, or no, it can't be this. It's kind of like, whatever you want to do, let's try it. Um, so what I wanted to do was actually create something that had like a pretty heavy electronic world to it, so that the parallel stories that are happening, which is Old Man in the Sea and Hemingway's life, are actually told through different, um, different sonic palettes. And so that's been really fun to kind of bring uh, just electronic world into my operatic, my operatic world, which is really, I think it's, it's just so much along the lines of what they're saying, which is that we have this extraordinary palette that we're blessed with. And of course, your challenge is to find what's your unique voice. And, um, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's what we all, I think, have, but also continue to, to strive to you know, chip away at. So I'm going to follow up with that. A slightly easier question for you guys. <laughs> if you sort of had your druthers, no holds barred, what would be like what would be the opera that you would want to write? What subject matter would you want to write about? Who would you want to do it with? Just sky's the limit, fantasy casting. <laughs> Let's do it right now. What would you want to do? Is that not an easier question? Sorry. Well, nobody, nobody tells what their project is. I know. Is that, like, like a thing, but I don't want to tell anybody. Right. So. It won't go beyond this room. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> you promise to never to not tell anyone. Um, I always wanted to do an opera of Fitzcarraldo, the Werner the Werner Herzog. Oh. <laughs> Where they. No, but like where they drag the the Herzog movie, where they drag the um, the boat over the mountain, and it, when they were filming the they were making the film, they actually dragged a boat over a mountain, and uh, it was under horrific conditions. So I think if I were going to do the opera, I'd actually have to drag a boat over a mountain, like on stage. So I'm, I'm working on on how to figure that out. Who, who would you want to do it with? Well, I would I would want I would the Done. Met yeah. you know guys call me I'm I'm available they you know seriously they give me my car be able to drag a boat over a mountain oh, for you yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um and I would love I would love Herzog to direct you know I'm really into getting people who are don't don't consider themselves part of the opera world mm -hmm. you know writers playwrights directors um, set designers and like drawing them into our our crazy world so I don't know. Now I want to do Fitzcarraldo, but now it's like. <laughs> no, <laughs> but really, though, if you you got to say like nobody could drag a boat up a mountain like the Met. They really should do it. They should commission. It. They should totally commission it. I have two things that I'm playing around with, but I I'm trying to understand why I want to do it. One is I, I was reading this book um, by this reporter named Oriana Falacci, and I really liked the fact that I started thinking that she was such an extraordinary woman and ended really hating her. 
And I think it's interesting because I think too often, especially as women, you know, we want to paint a picture of women as heroic because we want to kind of exert ourselves and and whether we're overt feminists or not, I mean, we all are, you know, women working in a field that is not easy for women. And I like the idea of painting a picture of a woman who's not perfect and who has all these flaws and who ends up alone in this room. But then I'm really troubled by the things that she did. And I'm like, is that really what I want to devote four years of my life to? Does that give it too much importance? You know, so I don't know. I'm still stuck on that one. But what I really want to do is I want to do a piece of Anna, like a Fellini work, and I'm not going to say which one, but it's a, it's a good one. Okay. <laughs> Our next question is actually one from one of our audience members, and that is, in today's economy, it can be very difficult to make a living as a musician, and I suspect that this is especially the case for composing, as it is more or less a freelance occupation. So how do you survive? How do you make a living? Yeah, um... Well, I think every composer does a hodgepodge of things. Every composer I know has like five jobs um, that they're that they're doing. Um, and I, I maybe I still have a day job. I don't know. It doesn't feel like it. That sounds very boring. But I, I teach at the new school, and I love teaching. And I love my students, and I get a lot of energy and inspiration from them. So it doesn't feel like a day job. Um, but I, I do that. I, I write music for uh, TV and film sometimes. Um, I just worked on this TV show, Mozart in the Jungle. Have you guys have seen that? It was just like super fun. And, and I did like consulting for them. I do arranging. I do some, like some arrangements for bands and who are, who are like a band will be asked to do a work with an orchestra and then they need someone to arrange the orchestra part. So, you know, and then that's in addition to all the, the, commis- the commissions. Um, and then I, I play and perform a little bit too. So it's like, it is like these like six things um, that kind of coalesce into um, a survival. <laughs> yeah, I would say the same. I, um, I guess my main thing is that these big pieces, I, the ones that are not commissioned, I also fundraise for. So I often take very little money of the pieces because I'm basically fund- fundraising. I have to fundraise my own salary. Um, so part of the way that I exi- uh, like survive is that I, <laughs> I uh, artistically run National Sawdust, which I founded and started seven years ago which is a space for young artists to um, bridge into professional life. And so I take a salary from National Sawdust, and then I do a million things um, from, you know, writing for film, writing for TV, um, doing some lectures and master classes, and, and you piece it all together. You don't have to apologize. <laughs> There's no apology. It's reality. <laughs> yeah, well, I, think, I don't have anything really to add, but we... Uh, we yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a series of things. But I, I teach at the Peabody Institute in Baltimore. And, you know, so what you try to do is manage to do that in a short amount of time so it doesn't, you know, completely take over your life. So I, I'm there every two weeks for two days, two intense days. Um, and I write other pieces besides opera that don't take as long. So commission there. And then, then of course, the pieces of yours that get played, like when Silent Night gets performed, um, I, I get royalties from that. And, you know, you put it all together. Another question from our audience. I've noticed in the art world, sound is very big. Artists are using sound as material. So where does the world of contemporary music intersect with what is happening in the art world? Electronics and opera is not something that typically goes together in terms of the more mainstream commissions. So a lot of, I mean, I don't correct me if I'm wrong, but like a lot of times they'll say to you, you know, we don't want electronics. They'll be very specific about not amplifying 
you know, whatever it is. So you'll you'll see the intersection more in kind of um, independently produced works. So Missy mentioned Beth Morrison, who's an amazing independent producer, and a lot of the work that she supports tends to tends to live at this kind of hybrid place of um, of mixing sound worlds and of composers working really, you know, in, in very kind of different mediums or, or intersecting with different disciplines. So it exists, but you, you just may not see it in the kind of more mainstream halls, but it's definitely happening. And it's a really exciting time, actually, for that kind of cross-pollination. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm very interested. I feel like there's, there isn't so much of that. There isn't so much cross-pollination, and uh, I would love to see more. So it's like what, what Beth and Paola are doing is, is so important and vital and inspiring. Um, with this new opera that I just finished, um, there'll be a presentation in Omaha in um, April, and, it's, and we designed it as an installation. So it's like the set is, is an installation that will be there for a month. And it's about um, you know, people's histories, in a nutshell, people's histories being erased. You know? So um, there are all these stories of Americans that have literally been you know, covered up by the dirt and the wind over a century. Um, and so it's this sort of evol constantly evolving installation that is then covered up and then uncovered and then covered up. And then the opera comes and sort of lives in that installation for the five days of the run. So that's, that's my sort of attempt to kind of edge into the contemporary art world which I find very inspiring. Like I'm always walking around Chelsea and like and getting inspired from all that. Um, and I wish there was more collaboration there. Naomi, you got one final big question. I do about the future of opera. Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> so what do you, from your perspective as composers, what do you think audiences can do to support contemporary opera and support the future of the art form as this? living, breathing, evolving, thriving thing? What role can audiences play in supporting the art form? I think it's a great question. Um, I think that a couple of things. I think that what's a what makes writing and creating opera right now, and I'll get to the audience part in a second, but what makes it really exciting is that um, I think gone are the days where you have to spend $20 million to create a great opera. I think the fact that there's so much independently produced work um, makes it a very democratic trend, and I think it makes it a time where um, a more diverse body of creators are actually creating work. I think when there is a diverse body of creators, it, it attracts a diverse audience. So what an audience can do is support the work in whatever way they can and go see the work. Mm -hmm. Understand that not everything you see is going to be your cup of tea, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go back, because that's the beauty of, of work, is that Someone might create something you love one day, and the next time they're exploring, you know they're exploring and finding their voice, and you might hate it. But that's kind of the best thing as an audience member is that you're constantly fed with these different uh, benchmarks. Yeah, I mean, I think just staying open to the idea of that something miraculous, something amazing can happen when you when you go to a show that you um, you, you don't know anything about. Um, what you can definitely what can be guaranteed is that the almost certainly the piece will be about being alive today, which is probably not what Mozart's operas are about. As amazing, amazing, amazing as they are, the most incredible music ever written. Um, or even, you know, Benjamin Britten's or um, Strauss's operas. Um, but today, you know, it's, there's, we live in a crazy, really, well, for us, by our standards, <laughs> it's a crazy world we live in. Um, Maybe in a hundred years it will be seen as tame, but um, at the moment, you know, to go to an opera, I think all of us want to 
do something in, in different ways that is, reflects the, the nature of life as uh, we feel it in the present. Um, and I think, and, and if just because you like, you, don't, you didn't like one piece you heard that was uh, of, of a, by someone who you hadn't heard before, try it again, because um, you'll, you'll hear something that will really you know, change your life. Yeah, we, sh we should just end it there, but I'm going to keep talking. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think we can, if we can just get out of this um, idea that it's either like, oh, I liked it or I didn't like it. You know, as if you have to come out of an opera and decide one or the other. And everyone's like, oh, did you like it? It's like, well, opera, it's like it was three hours of story and new, new information. And if we can just get into like a more nuanced um, idea of it, there'll be like a lot you like and a lot you don't like. And I think that's true for every opera. Um, and also just to, to be vocal to these institutions and, uh, and tell them that you enjoyed new work or, you know, give them your thoughts on the new work. So, because um, there's this idea that like nobody likes it, which again is the equivalent of saying, just coming out and giving a thumbs down. It's like, there's so much, so many thoughts to be had there and um, people trying to say really important, vital things. I could not agree more. And with that, we sadly need to bring our panel discussion to an end. Please, everyone, help me in giving a huge thank you to our panelists. They gave their time and energy to us today, and we so appreciate them sharing their stories and insights with us. It was so generous of all of you to be here. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. That was Missy Mazzoli, Paola Prestini, and Kevin Putz, who joined Elspeth Davis and I for an interview as part of our 2017 Opera in the New Millennium event. If you are looking for a way to see more contemporary opera, be sure to check out the Metropolitan Opera's nightly opera streams, where you can see full productions of works by composers such as Thomas Addis, Nicole Muley, Philip Glass, and more. And make sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.